Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. And tell your friends they can subscribe wherever they normally get their podcasts. You can listen to back episodes of Policy Speaking and learn more about the Public Policy Forum and our research projects at ppforum.ca or on the Twitter handle ppforumca. Here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Welcome to Policy Speaking. Well, it turned out to be a cliffhanger, not a landslide, and it's already been contested even before counting is complete. For those seeking repudiation of Donald Trump and what they consider his arbitrary, self-absorbed and divisive presidency, the best they can hope for now is a narrow defeat and probably one that comes with a divided country one way or another. Over the last four years, Canadians have watched the United States perhaps even more obsessively than normal as our closest neighbour became a less predictable and greater managerial challenge for Canada and other allies. We've been slapped with tariffs ostensibly on national security grounds. We were forced to rise to the occasion renegotiating the NAFTA under duress. And we were subjected to an earth-shattering temper tantrum at the G7 summit in Quebec. And due to COVID-19 and shaken confidence of the public health management of our neighbor, we continue to experience the closing of what once was hailed as the longest undefended border in the world. A good deal of the work of the Public Policy Forum considers the pressures a changing relationship places on Canadian policy, whether the economy, the environment, geopolitics, etc. And today I'm joined by a friend of the Public Policy Forum who knows a thing or two about Canada-US relations and how this monumental election can impact Canada and the superpower with which we share our only land border. Frank McKenna was Premier of New Brunswick for 10 years. PPF's annual Atlantic Canadian Policy Award is conferred in his name. And for what it's worth, he left office by choice after those 10 years without ever suffering an electoral defeat. In the mid-2000s, Frank was Canada's ambassador to the United States, and he maintains close contacts with business and political associates there. Since 2006, he's been deputy chair of TD Financial Group. TD is, of course, one of Canada's big five chartered banks and also has a huge network of branches and other operations south of the border. Its footprint extends into many of the battleground states, so Frank has yet another window into our neighbour. Welcome to Policy Speaking, Frank. Thank you, Ed. So, maybe we should give people a bit of a timestamp so they know when we're talking because the situation could be fairly fluid. It's 9.03 a.m. in Washington right now. And even without a final result, I think I want to start by asking you, what happened last night? What did American voters, you know, before we get to the actual mechanics, what did American voters tell us about where they stand and how they see the world? 
Well, I, I, I guess they told us a lot of things, um, and a lot of it will be a surprise to people in other countries, but th there's a lot more support for Donald Trump than, than we had assumed. All of these reports of massive defections from his base have not been warranted. The other thing that we know uh, is that he's a, an extraordinary politician. He has seen things that we have not seen. The polling within his group seems to be light years ahead of public polling. His team took him up to the state of Maine, for example, for a single electoral vote. They took him to Nebraska for a single vote. Uh, and yet those votes might become very material before all of the counting is done. They also seem to intuitively understand that the public were more concerned about their economic well-being than their health. And uh, I don't think in Canada we would have come to that conclusion, but clearly in the United States of America, rejecting a lot of the science around COVID has worked for him. And he ended up uh, dramatically outpolling the uh, conventional uh, wisdom. The other thing I would say is, is that the Democrats continue uh, to take a knife to a gunfight when they're fighting Donald Trump or the Republicans now. These are people that use the rules ruthlessly, use money ruthlessly, and uh, legally just about anything uh, and everything that will help suppress the vote. And they do it very effectively. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to uh, understand how the Democrats have failed to respond to that for years and years and years. And, you know, the example we saw, of course, with the Supreme Court nominee, you know, the lack of shame in putting forward a nominee after what had happened with Obama. But they do play by a different set of rules. And maybe we'll come back to that in a couple of minutes vis-a-vis -vis the election. I want to follow up actually on your COVID versus economy point, because I got to say, I was wondering what was going on in the last days of the election campaign. You know, it sort of seemed, had seemed it was going to be a referendum on Trump, and it was particularly going to be a referendum on his handling of COVID. And I had a slightly different feeling as I watched people board up their storefronts in the United States of America because they were having an election, the ultimate expression of democracy. I was wondering, you know, people don't like disorder. And, and I was wondering, so how much do you think maybe this was the economy that people were misreading and that people might have been moving back toward Trump? Maybe the polling was wrong and maybe there was uh, uh, people moving back. I'd like uh, you to uh, 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 speak about that. So how much would be the economy and how much would be his drumming up of insecurity in people? Yeah. So to start with on the polling, usually we can look back and say, wow, we missed a move in the last 24 hours or the last weekend. That's not the case here. The polling that you and I will have seen state by state and for the country went right up until the day of the election. And it hardly deviated at all. There may have been a modest tail off uh, on national polls from maybe 9% for Biden down to seven and a half or something. Uh, that is, that is outside the margin of error. So, uh, so we can't just blame a collective failure of polling per se. What's happened is that clearly there is a misreading of the people being polled. In other words, there are large percentage of the population who are not prepared to admit that they're voting for, for Trump. So I think that would explain part of it. Second part of it was the polls tell us a snapshot 
of America or Canada or any other place. What they don't tell us is who's going to vote. And, uh, and if you end up having uh, a very energized uh, electric base who will get out and vote uh, through thick or thin, which is what Trump's base did, then that skews the polling as well. And uh, the pollsters poll likely voters, they don't poll actual voters. And in this case, it's clear that Trump got his vote out. It's also clear that the Democratic Party, for whatever reason, has allowed a couple of constituencies to slip that were Obama constituencies, Latinos, for example. To see in Miami-Dade the dramatic drop-off in vote from Hillary Clinton, uh, that was shocking. Uh, to see somebody like Shalala lose her seat down there, shocking, highly respected public official. To see uh, African men in rural Georgia not come out to vote in numbers needed, that's shocking. If they had voted uh, in the same percentages that they voted for Obama, it would have been game over. So we, we, saw, we certainly saw the Democrats energize their base, suburban women particularly, and their urban base, but not to the extent that uh, the Trump was able to energize his and actually deliver them uh, on election day. Ground game still matters. The ground game still matters, and and their ground game, I have to say, is exquisite. I wouldn't have. I thought the Democratic ground game was strong, certainly in terms of absentee ballots. Uh, getting people out to vote early. They were very, very strong. But the, the election day ground game just didn't seem to be as strong. And what Trump effectively did here, there was only one way through to, to a win, and that is to win all the toss-ups and kind of get through the maze until you get to the final prize, which is probably Pennsylvania. Now, there is a path to victory for, for Biden, should he flip Michigan from where it is now and hold on to uh, Arizona, Nevada, and Wisconsin, and a couple of those uh, small votes in, in Nebraska and Maine, and Georgia. We'll, we'll see what happens in Georgia. But uh, clearly right now, one would have to give huge credit to Trump and his campaign for taking what looked like a, a hopeless situation and potentially uh, uh, riding it all the way to the presidency of the United States again. Okay, so let's try to figure out what happens now. Last night, well, early this morning, President Trump declared victory, said he's going to the Supreme Court. So how does this play out now, do you expect? We still have counting going on. And as you say, both parties, you can see uh, a path to victory, perhaps a little clearer with Biden, I don't know. But both parties definitely have a path to victory. So what happens next? Yeah, well, uh, we, we shouldn't be surprised that Trump would come out and, and make a, a fractious remark, a controversial remark like that. That's his style. Uh, I thought it was unseemly, but that, that's been his characteristic. One should be trying to be a statesperson at this moment in American history and, and try to speak to the greater good, because when it's all over, one has to unify the country. But instead, he's doing what he, he's done all of his life. What he learned from Roy Cohn uh, was starting to bring in the lawyers on everything. Uh, never admit defeat, never admit weakness, uh, attack, 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 attack. And that's what he's doing there. So it's very consistent behavior. But for the rest of the world, it's just so unflattering towards the United States of America. 
uh, to realize the one of the major efforts in this campaign has been to suppress votes or not to count votes. That just seems alien to one of the most robust democracies in the world. And uh, I think this will only get exaggerated in the coming days. If this comes right down to Pennsylvania and their vote is delayed three or four days, as it looks like it will be, then uh, the tensions will only increase. Do you expect that it will be decided ultimately in the courts? Well, there could be court challenges. There are paths to victory that would be a little bit cleaner, but I don't know if anybody will find them. There's a chance that Georgia would end up being Democratic. I think it's a long shot. There's a better shot that Michigan will. And if you do that, I think my math is right. If you've got Maine and Michigan and you've got Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, and yeah. vote for Nebraska, that gets you your 270. Uh, yeah. So I think I'm right on that. If that's the case, it should be decided before the day's over. Uh, there may be arguments uh, about absentee ballots in Michigan and, and Wisconsin, but, but it won't be the same as a wholesale challenge of results that could take place in Pennsylvania where oh, half a million or more ballots remain uncounted and won't be for the next few days. Well, let's say that we do have that narrow Biden victory, because in any case, whoever wins, it's going to be uh, pretty narrow. I guess if Biden had that 270 and then got Pennsylvania, it would be uh, a little bit more robust. But but let's just sort of say it's a, it is a narrow victory. What is that going to mean to Biden president going forward? Yeah, it's very interesting. First of all, let's talk about some of the cleavages, very sharp cleavages uh, have been exposed in the United States between men and women, educated and uneducated, and particularly acute between rural and suburban and urban, with, with suburban and urban uh, skewing heavily towards the Democratic Party. These are hard genies to get back in the bottle again. And so there's, got, there's gonna be a lot of damage control to take. If a Biden were to win, he's gotta try to heal the, the nation. Ronald Reagan might have handled that, you know, to be himself, actually, uh, you know, uh, a uniquely uh, experienced individual who's worked both sides of the aisle and whose every instinct is collegial and, and consensual. That's what his challenge will be. But he's going to be up against a Republican Senate who is going to be feeling their oats, a president who is going to have a massive constituency of 80-some million people hanging on his every word, former president, if that's the case, in the case of Trump. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult to get things done. And the entire agenda that Biden ran on, in large measure, requires Senate approval. He, he'll get zero cooperation, I believe, from this Senate, unless it's in the best interest of Republicans. So we're going to see a deeply, deeply divided government. We'll see gridlock. And, you know... A lot of Americans don't find that uh, an odious thought. Uh, a lot of businesses in the United States find gridlock quite good because government stays out of their business. Uh, so that won't be the end of the world. Most countries, people would say that's a terrible thing. They won't find it that way in the United States. But it'd be very frustrating for Biden to get his stuff done. If Trump were to win, he'll have the Senate on his side. Uh, he actually has reduced the congressional majority. And so he'll have a much better path to getting his agenda fulfill whatever that agenda is, because he really didn't uh, end up spelling out uh, a platform for the next four years. 
Yeah, so divided government to reflecting divided society, you know, when you were ambassador, as you recall, you uh, told an audience that, uh, and I quote, I, the government of the United States is in large measure dysfunctional. I think it was a fairly controversial comment at that point, perhaps ahead of your time. So if you were thinking that then, what are you thinking now? You know, I had just come from a swearing in of the governor general and I was speaking at the Canadian Club in Toronto. And I was kind of all jazzed up. And I talked about what kind of a country could claim as their supreme leader, Governor General, being that nature of a monarch, the daughter of slaves who came as a refugee from Haiti and came from that background in one generation to have the leading office in the land. Uh, speaking multiple languages to Canadians. Uh, and and I, I, I was so proud of the occasion that I, I was talking about that. And I said, in the meantime, I'm ambassador to a country that by comparison is somewhat dysfunctional. I really got reamed out for that. It's justifiably so, I guess. But it was almost entirely from Canadians who found that a, a really offensive thing for an ambassador to say. And I had to grovel and apologize and everything, which I did a lot when I was ambassador. I wasn't a very good ambassador. But I went back to Washington. The first call I got was from Robert Novak. And you'll recall Robert Novak, uh, who did Crossfire. Uh, he used to always watch a great political show. He said he wanted to have breakfast. He came in the next morning for breakfast. He said, I thought he was going to ring me out. Uh, he said, I just want to congratulate you on what you said about gridlock. He said, you got it exactly right. That's the way the system was designed. That's the way we like it. And <laughs> it's dysfunctional. And that's the way we like it. And you know something? Uh, what he said turned out to be prophetic. I never had a voice raised from anybody in the United States of America about what I had to say. Uh, all of the criticism came from Canada. And by the way, I've had a lot of comments since from uh, ambassadors and other people that I've dealt with in the United States who remembered uh, that controversy that I was involved in said, by the way, Frank, you were right. We're not just somewhat dysfunctional, we're really dysfunctional. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess to some extent it's the society that maybe concerns me more. And as you say, if Trump loses, there'll be 80 million highly energized people who are angry with the result. Maybe the Democrats will go slink off into the night a little bit more quietly if they lose, but we know that uh, that the Trump supporters will not. So hyper-partisanship that we've seen, polarization that we've seen, I imagine there's not much of a pathway, we're talking about pathways today, for that to get better in the short term. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I hope you're wrong. Um, there's no doubt this is a group that's not only highly energized, but they're really antagonistic to authority. And you saw when Trump did his dog whistle, three or 4,000 of them descended on the state house in uh, Michigan with uh, AK-47s. And you saw the dog whistles out in Oregon where the Proud Boys showed up and started uh, riding in the streets. And, and Trump, you know, uh, all that fractiousness and uh, and violence even placed to him as the law and order candidate. It, you, you kind of alluded to it before. He may very well have taken advantage of some of the uh, of the rancor 
that was developing as a result of, uh, of shootings of, of black men, et cetera, uh, that created chaos in the cities. I think he took advantage of that uh, in order to state his credentials. Uh, you're safe with me. So he ran on economic security and physical security. Those things matter. And they seem to trump pandemic security, uh, quite frankly. Um, so when you look at it all, I, I, I don't, you don't know there'll be smarter people parse all of this, but at the end of the day, I think we've just had a dead wrong about Trump because we don't live in the country. We don't live in the United States of America. Uh, and he's got, a, he's got a broad base of support. A lot of it that uh, uh, is, um, is quiet, but he's got a broad base of support. You know, I just disagree with them on the pandemic response. I disagree with them on the law and order. But what bothers me more is should he win, he'll feel empowered to reconstruct Fortress America uh, or construct Fortress America, which really means tearing down all the multilateral institutions of the world that the United States was the leader in creating. and. Uh, attacking, he'll have license to attack the WTO, uh, the WHO, or uh, Paris Accords, and everything. All of the, all of the institutions which help collectively guide our behavior uh, may be effectively destroyed. And uh, and you know when that happened in the dirty 30s, it led to chaos, and it has that potential now. The world is going to be untethered, and that's the yeah. part that bothers me the most between I Canada. And States will figure it out. We, we will figure it out. Uh, we're neighbors and friends. Uh, we're not well, going away as a neighbor. But for the rest of the world and for us in the world, I am very, very concerned with the Trump presidency. Well, let's talk about Canada, the United States, and the rest of the world um, in the rest of the show. But I should uh, maybe just uh, say that it's 9.24 a.m. now in Eastern Time Zone. And Michigan, uh, in the last few minutes, has flipped over to the Biden side. So that might be an indication of, uh, of trend lines today. So Canada, Michigan being one of our uh, close neighbors to Canada. How do we come out of this last night? Economy, environment, multilateralism, which you just spoke about, the pandemic. I mean, what is the Canadian story out of the U.S. election? Again, it depends on who wins. If it's Trump, it's more of the same, which is really unpredictability. Uh, the potential for more trade wars, uh, and they could be asymmetric, uh, like Section 230 tariffs on steel and aluminum. Uh, you know, a week or two ago, he's talking about attacking blueberries. And uh, so you just don't know, and it's so hard to defend against an asymmetric threat because you think you've got a trade agreement, but all of a sudden he he expands the authority of the president uh, in so many ways that he can attack you from all kinds of different angles. So that would be a, a problem. On the other hand, if Trump were to win, Keystone XL would probably proceed unabated. Uh, so in that sense, it might be good news for the uh, oil sector. On the other hand, on climate change, where Canada is quite advanced in terms of carbon taxation, methane emission standards, and so on. We will be competitively disadvantaged with the U.S., which will have none, none of those kinds of safeguards. So that will be a problem. On the other hand, if Biden were to win, I think you'd see a few things uh, that are quite different. Uh, if he were able to introduce his tax 
a package, which he won't with a Republican Senate, Canada would instantly become more competitive. If he were able to introduce his massive uh, stimulation package, 2.6 trillion, uh, I think it would lift both the United States and Canada, even if the Buy American provision were there. Um, one area where I think we're going to win big, maybe if both are elected, but particularly if Trump is elected, is on, on immigration. Uh, he, he's not only hostile, but seem to be hostile. And that involves gifted students going to US universities or really high quality immigrants who are fueling the, uh, fueling the intellectual uh, resurgence of the United States of America. Canada is going to have an open field at getting those people. And we'll have an open field at getting some Americans too, by the way. I, I had, this is uh, a joke and I hope you'll take it that way, but I had three different people call in the last three weeks. One was an ex-president of the United States, one was an ex-senator, one is a very prominent billionaire, one of the most prominent billionaires. All three asked about uh, whether Canada would be willing to <laughs> have them as residents. And uh, uh, at least in one or two cases, they were joking, not in all three cases. But uh, there, will, there, there will be a number of Americans, gifted Americans, uh, people in academic communities and so on, who may see Canada as an interesting place to be. More importantly, I don't subscribe to that theory. I don't think there'll be a wholesale flood of people coming. There'll be Canadians who live in the U.S. that will come home. We'll see some of that. But for people around the world, people from India, China, uh, all other parts of the world, they'll, they'll, they'll be worried about going to the United States of America. And Canada will look pretty good. And I think uh, having a robust immigration policy uh, will work well for us. And our government has already announced its intention to raise the numbers uh, here. So, you know, we're onto that, I guess, for our own reasons. But it does it does create a competitive advantage, as you say. A couple of things that Biden uh, talked about very prominently during the election campaign. I just want to touch on those particularly in light of uh, what will be a weak victory, if a victory, and a Senate that uh, he will not have flipped. So the environment, which you touched on in terms of a Trump, uh, if Trump wins, but uh, a very different environmental policy that Biden talked about, and um, tax policy, particularly, in which you know his desire to raise certain taxes would have put Canada, I guess, in a better competitive position, but you know, will he have uh, that kind of maneuvering room? So environment taxes, two, uh, two things I want to know, you know, uh, not just what he intends to do, but, you know, what he might be able to do. Yeah, certainly a massive environmental package was incorporated in the infrastructure program. I think that they'll negotiate something they always do, but it will be minuscule compared to what his uh, intentions were. Because he intended to fund that by by taking half of the of the Bush tax cut, and the Republicans simply won't stand for that. He was going to move the corporate rate from 21 up to closer to 29, and get rid of uh, uh, carried interest, uh, and get rid of uh, capital gains and, and dividends tax by putting them at the at the level of ordinary income. I, it'll be hard to see how those things will happen. So Canada, Canada was had an interesting choice in front of it. It could sit still and instantly become more competitive, which is what I would hope uh, as a pro-growth strategy. Or they might have said, look, the United States has given us some room 
to move into uh, into some tax areas, like changing the inclusion policy on capital gains, for example, or moving up our personal tax rate, for example. It'll be harder to do that, quite frankly, uh, if Biden is not able to get his agenda through. So we, you know, if Biden were to win, we'll see a different tone at the top. We might even see a visit from a U.S. president to Canada, which would be welcome. Uh, we may see him follow Trump's path to push out the power of the presidency, because so many things that Trump did are not in the playbook. Nobody ever thought presidential power could go that far. So he may uh, he may take action on the uh, Iranian Comprehensive uh, Treaty. Uh, he may uh, he may have the power to get back in into uh, the Paris Accords. Um, who knows? He, he'll have to push the very outer limits of his of his power because he'll have a Senate that will be blocking him every step of the way. And how do you think? geopolitics will play out uh, would play out differently and, and particularly the United States China uh, question which is so central to peace and prosperity uh, in the world security in the world and the subset of that of course which is you know Canada uh, having you know two of our citizens in jail in China relations deteriorating uh, with China does a Biden presidency and a Trump presidency uh, play that differently, both? Yeah, you I know, think, in, in large measure and for Canada's perspective. I think with with Trump, you get more of the same, and I don't think he'll uh, lift a finger to help us on China. There's a potential path through in the case of a Biden presidency. Should he go back to the original Iranian uh, deals and, and reduce sanctions, it might take away the uh, Casabella, if you like, for the Meng Wanzhou apprehension uh, uh, and, and extradition. So if all of a sudden the U.S. were to say, look, we have a different view on sanctions with Iran now, uh, so we're going to let you off the hook on Meng Wanzhou, that would probably help restore our relationship with, uh, with China and hopefully release our prisoners. Look, I, I'm going to use an elegant language, but it was used by a U.S. diplomat, so I want to use it. What the fat boy in the canoe does really matters. And in this case, we've got two fat boys in the canoe. And it matters what both of them uh, happen to do. In the case of Trump, I think that he's cost himself a lot of respect on the world stage, a lot. If China were wise and, and, and far looking, I think that they could have occupied a lot of that space Instead, we've seen them picking fights with Taiwan and with Australia and with Europe and with Canada and with India and other countries around the world. Instead of taking the open field that was made available to them and moving into it. So I don't know going forward whether China uh, has got the uh, muscular diplomacy uh, to become a, a major world diplomatic power. Because theoretically, with Trump becoming much more unilateral and protectionist, the rest of the world has a chance to regroup around a different quarterback or quarterbacks. And we may see that. We may see a different kind of WTO. We may see a reserve currency develop. I don't think the rest of the world, if Trump wins, is going to put up with four more years of being beaten up. Uh, constantly uh, without creating some kind of 
uh, of of club uh, to try to to try to fight back. And for Canada, we need a multilateral world. And I don't have to tell you, we need we need rules of the game that we understand and appreciate. We need trading rules that we can live by. Uh, and so we're going to have to seriously rethink where we fit in the world should Trump win. And if Biden wins, at least I think we'll we'll be able to open up some civil dialogue. You know, Frank, I had I had uh, a, a, a veteran, uh, somebody who's uh, you know, well into his 80s now of uh, Canadian policy, Canadian politics, say to me recently that he's never seen Canada as isolated in the world as it is now. And by that, he was thinking about, you know, the relationship with China and he was thinking about the relationship with the United States in terms of the number of the arbitrary measures uh, that have been implemented uh, and and, uh, and the uh, erosion of multilateralism. So so we have 75 percent of our economic eggs in the United States basket. And at times that has even been higher and it's been you know, a great boon to Canada economically to live next to uh, a dynamo. Uh, which is maybe not as much a dynamo. I read something off uh, of Canadian trade officials uh, recently that we have, we're the fourth most reliant on a single country of 113 countries in the world. Uh, so it is a lot of eggs, relatively speaking, even to others. Then again, the first uh, alternative is China, and that doesn't look very promising. So if you were advising the Canadian government, what would we be doing uh, now to try to diversify or to give up on diversification, double down? Where would you be going? You know, it's interesting. Justin Trudeau's father, Prime Minister of Canada, faced a comparable situation over 50 years ago where tariffs were, were put up by the United States. And he vowed that we would seek new markets in the world and that we would diversify our trade. Uh, at that time, we were about 72 or 3 percent of our trade was going to the United States. It's now at 75 percent or higher. So over 50 years, all we've done is gone in the wrong direction. And I know why. I, you know, we have a kitchen cabinet manufacturing business here. 40 or 50 percent of our production goes to the U.S. Why? It's easy. Really easy. Just goes across the border to, into the United States. Uh, we're trapped in here. We can't really get to Quebec. Quebec is like a country all to itself. Uh, and if you're out here at the end of Quebec, you know that. So we all trade with the United States. Uh, so there are a number of things that we need to do uh, better. Uh, one, we, we need to obviously maintain and tend the garden with the United States. And that means doing all the public diplomacy that Canada's done so well over the years at every level under the president. Uh, senators, uh, governors, etc., trade organizations, and so on. Secondly, we have to take seriously interprovincial trade within Canada. Uh, that in itself would give a boost to uh, the productivity of our economy and create wealth. Somebody's got to have the guts to actually do this once and for all. And then thirdly, we've got to be serious about uh, going out there and uh, and doing business with the rest of the world. We, we negotiated after lots of sound and fury uh, treat free trade agreement with Europe, CETA. Lots of arguments, lots of fuss, lots of mess, lots of everything else. Right now, Europe is taking more advantage of that than we are. We're simply not advantage of a free trade deal that we desperately wanted. So we've got to push Canadians out of the nest and make them fly. 
Similarly with the TPP, what's the use of having these massive agreements if we don't take advantage of it? And so we've got to get much more aggressive at diversifying our trade and getting out there and competing with the world. We've got to reduce, we've got to re reduce barriers to getting stuff done within Canada that would make us more efficient. We've got to lubricate the regulatory system. Uh, we've got to get rid of regulations. We've, we've got to recognize that we're in a world where uh, the, the helping hand you're looking for is right at the end of your own arm. And you've, you've got to up your game. We've got to up our game as Canadians. So let's just end on politics, which uh, the uh, in the final analysis uh, always factors, you know, so strongly into into any decision making. We have a minority parliament in Canada. We've had for we have Canadians who are by and large Democrats, right? I think they've uh, they've said eighty percent of them would have voted for Biden. So if uh, if Canada was a state in the United States, we wouldn't be talking about a cliffhanger uh, <laughs> uh, at all. Uh, he would have our uh, 50 some odd electoral college vote on his side. So us as the government has to uh, deal with either a Biden administration or a Trump administration as the leader of the new opposition uh, or the new leader of the opposition has to deal uh, uh, with it moving into electoral season. How does the how do the permutations play out here for uh, for Canadian politics? As you know, we're probably going to have an election. I would suspect in twenty twenty one. Yeah. So um, I think we're going to uh, keep calm and carry on. I think we're going to do what we did with the trade negotiations. We're going to create a Fortress Canada, a Canada Inc., if you like with all political constituencies, provincial and federal involved. That's what I think we'll do. Um, it would be foolhardy for us to second guess the judgment of US voters. I think it would be foolhardy for political parties in Canada to try to make politics out of the relationship. We, we, we've been quite good at not doing that. Now I noticed the leader of the NDP has, has kind of declared himself, uh, but that's fine. But the, the major parties, the responsible parties who have an opportunity to govern are are being are being careful, circumspect, knowing that they're going to have to deal with whatever government the United States produces. I think we'll continue to do that and continue to apply our diplomacy at a public level. And by that I mean governor to premier to senator to cabinet secretary, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce to the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. The, the linkages are really deep. And it was those linkages who, that got us uh, the final result of the NAFTA negotiation. It wasn't the President of the United States. I think he would have been glad to tear up the deal. But when, when they went up to the Hill, they were basically told, get a deal, uh, get this done. And I think we still have those same friends and we need to use all those trap lines. And that means that Canada has got to avoid the temptation, which I think, it for me would be very hard and that is to to fight back to retaliate with harsh language to uh to to uh to challenge uh uh the president if it's president trump uh, with some of his rhetoric i think we have to be firm but but very measured in our response and i think we're up to that we we've got some experience at that in the meantime um we need to get out there and make friends with the rest of the world 
So I, th- I, I think so far you've answered this question like a statesman. And I'm just trying to take you back to when you were a politician uh, as well. And, uh, and, uh, and seriously, an incumbent progressive prime minister of Canada who's had to work very gingerly with a president of the United States who's very unpopular in Canada, um, if he is liberated from that situation, is that politically good for him? Or is it actually better to be contrasted with that president of the United States? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. When I was ambassador, uh, we had Paul tried to incorporate into his election campaign some anti-American rhetoric, and so on. It wasn't very pleasant being in Washington when that happened. I am, I'm quite sure Trudeau has not shown any of those tendencies or propensities. And I, I don't think that he'll change now. There's no doubt that uh, he could, if he wanted to, try to run a Canadian election by having a sharp contrast with the United States uh, and fighting with the United States. I have seen no evidence that they intend to go in that direction. I think there's a sense that the relationship is just too valuable uh, to uh, turn political. Uh, that's the impression I have. And by the way, uh, I want to say there are a lot of countries in the world we could do business with and should. We need to repair a relationship with the Middle East, Saudi Arabia. We need to do business with India, one of the largest economies in the world. We need to re- repair uh, relationships with Asia, Europe. Uh, we need to accelerate our relationships. So we, uh, we, we need to... We need to up our game on a number of levels, and I'm sure the government of Canada is setting out to do that. Okay, and let's just circle back a final uh, comment about uh, uh, the United States and whether it can heal itself, whether it needs to heal itself. Uh, in the short term, I think it's going to be very difficult because it's a self-sorting society now. If I'm a Republican, I watch Fox News, listen to Rush Limbaugh, and read the Wall Street Journal. And I'm fed a steady diet of, of news supporting my views. And the Democrats have exactly the opposite situation with the New York Times, CNN, Vanity Fair, as the case might be. And when, when you have self-sorted, you even self-sorted into where you live based on your politics. So it's really hard to bridge that divide. Uh, I think a President Biden has one of the better chances because he comes from a Senate that was collegial. But when you look at the number of people who can reach hands across that aisle, you could count them up on your on your fingers, the fingers of one hand. There are not many people uh, to do that. So it's gonna be a long slog. And especially with social media and the way in which views can become so intense and personal and so much uh, misinformation can be fed into the body politic. Um, I think, I think the U.S. has got a long slog. And then on top of that, they've got a totally politicized Supreme Court. They've got a system that rewards people with the most money. Uh, there's no limit to money in politics. Uh, I think we're in for a pretty sharp uh, polarization for some time to come. Maybe if there was an external enemy, that would change things. Uh, I'd hate to see that happen, uh, an event like 9-11 or or some other external enemy, but uh, it may take uh, some kind of external force to bring America together. Yeah, I think what you say, um, you know, it's kind of the founding fathers designed a, a system with separation of powers, and to some extent that works, but it's been overwhelmed by hyperpartisanship that will go uh, 
uh, go across. So perhaps when you've got, you know, a split within some of those branches, it uh, it might give you that separation of powers. But if one party controls all uh, three branches and the idea of controlling a Supreme Court is such a foreign concept for us, uh, nonetheless real, it, it does uh, it does distort the system, doesn't it? Well, and then the gross inequities, uh, it, the Democrats will have won the popular vote in this election, as they did in the last election. Uh, and, and we've got a Senate, which now uh, represents more Republicans than Democrats, in spite of having 30 million less voters who voted for them. That skewing of the Senate will continue to the point where uh, the Republicans uh, could end up controlling the entire Senate with a fraction of the popular vote in the country. Wyoming, with two uh, senators and 500,000 people, has all the power of California, close to 40 million people and two senators. After a while, people are going to get a little sick and tired of that level of inequity in representation. Yeah. Frank, I want to really thank you for coming out the morning after. I'm sure, uh, like me, you were up late last night watching this and you were up early this morning uh, watching it again. You know, you've helped us a lot with some of the uh, more fundamental issues as well. So I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Always good to do things with you like this, Ed. Okay, now I've got the policy speaking obscure question of the week for our listeners. We've asked JDM Stewart, history teacher extraordinaire and author of the 2018 book Being Prime Minister, to challenge and distract us with trivial matters in these days of everything being so monumental. And this week is a particularly monumental week. You can respond on our, on our PPF Twitter or Instagram accounts. And uh, from time to time, we give a verbal pat on the back during uh, the next episode. But this week we had a lot of right answers, so uh, there might be too many verbal pats on the back to give. The question we highlighted was a um, election, uh, US election type question. And as you know, California is a reliable blue state, heavily supporting Democratic presidential candidates for many years. Texas is a reliable red state, supporting Republican candidates. The question was, what was the last time California turned its electoral college votes over to a Republican nominee. And when was the last time Texas voted for a Democratic uh, Party nominee? So the answer was, in the case of Texas, it was 1976 when Jimmy Carter, a southerner from Georgia, won Texas. And in the case of California, the last time was 1988, where George Bush Sr., Michael Dukakis and took California, which was probably not a fluke. California was um, still a place in play, and its ex-governor Ronald Reagan had won uh, it obviously twice. In fact, in nine of the ten previous presidential elections, the Republicans had won California, and uh, but since 1988, they have not. States evolve, states change, uh, as we are saying, I think, in several states in both directions. And then this week's question, we are sticking to our U.S. election theme, and we're going to keep it pretty simple. How many times is the Electoral College referenced in the Constitution of the United States? Right now, we're waiting for Electoral College results, and we want to know how many times is the Electoral College referenced in the Constitution of the United States? Finally, at the end of our podcast, we'd like to take a moment 
to uh, salute some of the above and beyond the Call of Duty efforts being made by PPF members and partners. And this week we want to say we are PPF proud of our member Elections Canada. Interesting time to be talking about Elections Canada, the independent, non-partisan agency responsible for conducting federal elections and the occasional referenda. Elections Canada has recently released a new educational tool called Comparing Electoral Systems Canada and the United States. It's a good time for students and all Canadians to appreciate the relative calm and professionalism around Canadian elections. The Election Canada's tool includes a thinking guide, comparison tables, and a helpful vocabulary guide. All materials are available on the electionsanddemocracy.ca website. And as I say, we are PPF proud of Elections Canada for the creation of this educational tool. And with that, we come to uh, wrap on this edition of Policy Speaking. I'm Edward Greenspawn. Thank you for listening. And be sure to tell your friends so that they can find us in any of the best places podcasts are collected. Goodbye.